0: This is Upstate's Health Link on Air, Linda Cohen along with you. With all the attention that Bruce Jenner's transition to Caitlyn Jenner caused recently, the issue of transgender identity has become a front and center issue of interest in this country. While the exact numbers of transgender individuals in the U.S. remains a rough estimate, data has suggested that there are approximately 700,000 of these individuals identifying themselves as transgender. And approximately 1 in 30,000 adult transgender males and 1 in 100,000 adult transgender females will seek sexual reassignment surgery. As complex and challenging as this surgery can be, there are also potential health issues that can arise following these procedures. Here with more on all of this is Dr. Dmitry Nikolovsky, Assistant Professor of Urology and the Director of Reconstructive Urology at Upstate Medical University. And joining us by telephone from Western New York is Terry Cook. She's the author of a new book called Allies in Angels and the Parent of a Transgender Child. Thank you both for coming in. Welcome.
1: Thank you for Thank having you, us. Thank you,
0: Linda. So, Terry, let me start with you. When we start talking about transgender, It's still so new for so many people. Help us understand the circumstance of discovering that you are transgender and the kinds of concerns and how people begin to approach this idea of perhaps undertaking sexual reassignment surgery.
2: Sure, thank you, Linda. Uh, Well, first of all, this was very new for my husband and I as well many years ago. If you had asked us several years ago what it means to be transgender, we, we couldn't have given you a good answer. My husband and I have two boys who are 20 and 24, but we didn't always know that we had two sons. For 15 years, I believed I was raising a daughter, and we've learned a lot and we've unlearned a lot as to what this, what this even means. You, know, with the, you mentioned the increased visibility um, with Caitlyn Jenner and, and others in the media. Even with that increased visibility we're seeing, most people really don't know or understand what it means to be transgender. And my husband and I we have have learned a lot. We've had a very urgent and compelling reason to learn because our our son's life depended on it.
0: So in your experience or in your experience now as an advocate and speaking to other parents and and individuals, transgender individuals, what, you know, what are some of the challenges early on in terms of both the individual who the transgender individual and the families in terms of, you know, this whole issue of identity, sexual identity, or identity in general, and how they come to the decision to actually undergo some kind of surgical procedure.
2: Sure. Um, well, there was first within our experience, and, I, and I, I I don't speak for all transgender individuals or their families. This is our family's experience, and and. Um, the experience is very broad and varied and different in our family's situation a, a a good deal of the struggle and the challenge came to really even understanding that our child is transgender um, and 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 I will it helps in this context to understand um the difference between gender identity and sex or assigned sex at birth. My child was assigned female at birth. I thought I had a daughter. And your sex refers to someone's body, the the physiological and and anatomical characteristics. Um, When a child is born, the parents and doctor look between the legs and say, you know, you have a boy or you have a girl. Um, That's the assigned sex at birth. Gender identity is a person's own understanding of who they are, of, of knowing whether they are male or female. It's gender identity is, is in your brain. It is an internal sense of knowing who we are. And for most of us, um, we sort of take that for granted and, and, and gender and sex are sort of, um, you know, lumped together as one and the same. I, I always certainly did take it for granted. I was assigned female at birth. I always thought I was a, a woman and felt comfortable with that. But for a transgender individual, uh, like my son, for example, was assigned female at birth he always felt that he was a boy from his earliest memories he always felt that he was a boy but was not able to articulate that for us to explain that to us Um, gender identity is um, children actually know their gender identity as young as 18 months 18 months to three years children know their gender identity and we all have a gender identity we all do for most of us it's aligned with our assigned sex but not for transgender individuals.
0: Now, so what led, in your son's case, what led him to the point of the courage, perhaps, to undertake this sure. kind of gender, gender reassignment surgery?
2: Sure. Uh, well, for my son, it wasn't until puberty, uh, until his uh, middle school years, that he was even able to articulate this, to come out and say, you know, I I am a boy. This isn't something that just happened overnight. It took, um, there was a great deal of, of struggle, depression, anxiety feeling that he didn't fit in, feeling that um, there was something that was not aligned within him, but not be able, being able to articulate it. Um, by the time he was able to actually communicate to us and we were able to um, understand through many different doctors and therapists and professionals and specialists that, that our son actually is transgender, that our son is a boy. He had, he had a male brain inside what we thought was a female body. Um, that was se- after several years of um, difficulty, anxiety, depression, struggling. So when, when the time came, when, when we were all at that place of of knowing, of knowing that that our child actually was a boy, um, I, I don't want to brush through that and make it sound as if, okay, one day our, our, our child came to us and said, "I'm really a boy," and then we said, "Okay, well let's let's move forward." Then, um, when we got to that point. Um, Transition is different for everyone. Transition, so, so our child, we understood, needed, he had such dysphoria in his body. He had such um, moving through the world, being seen and perceived by others as a woman when he knew he was a man. Um, his, his discomfort with his own body was very severe. He, um, he needed to make changes. To be able to move through and live his life and be and, and move through the world as a man, he needed to make changes. And for him, and for many people, those t- transition involves hormones and it involves surgery. It doesn't for everyone, but for the the choices, um, the what was necessary for him, with in consultation with the professionals we were working with um, and with my son, um, it, it was a a uh a long and difficult process i don't want to i'm reluctant to brush over it because many people ask me over the years how could a parent what kind of parent could allow their child to make permanent changes to their body with hormones and surgery um you know how could a child know these were decisions um to seek this care based on an extended period of time working with medical professionals on what he needs.
0: Okay, well, I'm going to just interrupt you for a minute because I want Dr. Nikolovsky to help us understand what takes place when we talk about gender reassignment surgery, just very briefly.
1: Thank you. Um, So I personally don't do uh, these big surgeries, at least not yet. I'm a urologist. I'm a reconstructive urologist uh, that was trained in uh, trauma Uh, male reconstruction, female reconstruction and I started here at Upstate in 2012 and uh, really never was exposed to transgender uh, reassignment surgeries and...
0: But help us understand I know you don't do that specific surgery at this point in time and I know you're doing some help for those kinds of surgeries following them but what actually takes place just very briefly in terms of female to male, male to female, what goes on?
1: Uh, So those uh, uh, professionals, those reconstructive surgeons that do uh, this operation, at least in the United States and most of the world, they follow the guidelines of uh, World Professional Association of Gender Gender Health, and uh, they publish the standards by which uh, this this process goes. Uh, So it starts with uh, living in a new gender uh, role for at least one year, Uh, taking appropriate hormones depending on uh, which way the uh, reassignment goes uh, for another year. Um, They have to receive two letters of recommendation uh, for surgery from uh, mental health professionals two independent letters recommending the surgery and then usually it's done in a staged approach Uh, first the top surgeries are done, the breast surgeries are done again depending on Uh, which Which direction direction and then finally if patient uh, desires the very final step is the uh, genital reconstruction and there are many ways to do it
0: if you're just joining us you're listening to upstate's health link on air i'm linda cohen along with urologist dr Dmitry nikolovsky and actually author terry cook who is also a parent of a transgender child Mm -hmm. um so let me get back to following this kind of surgery, Dr. Nikolovsky, there can be, I mean, I know you don't actually do the the original surgery to make this gender reassignment take place, but there can be problems, not in every case, but in some cases following this kind of surgery. Tell us briefly what those are.
1: I I didn't know about these problems myself until the first patient uh, came, and I was only one year uh, after my fellowship kind of settling in in my reconstructive role here, seeing uh, male reconstruction, female reconstruction. So the first patient comes and says, uh, three months ago or two months ago, I just underwent the final surgery, the, uh, uh, the genital reconstruction, and it was in a faraway state. Uh, I'm local and uh, I-, I think there were complications because I still can't urinate. So. I- I immediately felt very, very uncomfortable because I never uh, witnessed or experienced uh, anything like this. Um, I can see all kinds of tubes sticking out and I don't even know what what to expect. So uh, I had to go from known to unknown. This is our practice in reconstruction. You start where you know and, and move towards unknown territory. So I had to call the original surgeon. Um, and it was very uncomfortable conversation on the phone i i don't want to be the guy that uh, tells another surgeon hey you had a complication so it was a kind of following a uh, thin line walking on eggshells to say uh, this is this is your patient i'll take take care of this patient uh, i think this is what needs to be done uh, he corrected me in many ways he's a wonderful uh, wonderful surgeon very skilled and um,
0: So the bottom line, though, is that there are certain issues that do follow. What are the kinds of things that you found happen?
1: So I learned, uh, basically, not from books because there's almost nothing, there is nothing written in the books and only few articles are written in literature, I had to learn that uh, there are potential several complications following this kind of surgery. Uh, it could be strictures which is scar tissue built up around the seam lines of the reconstruction. that could be uh, fistulus, which is leakage between the seam lines and uh, uh, outside the, the body. Uh, could be abscess cavities, could be and usually it's a combination of uh, two and up to six different things that could go wrong. But uh, I have to say that these are minor complications compared to the the amazing and very complex surgery that was done to begin with.
0: So the idea is that you you were required in this circumstance and, and as a result learned all about it. Now I think you're quite experienced. But the idea was you had to learn what were the potential complications and they required additional surgical intervention, which you have successfully done now, it sounds like, in more than that initial patient. That right, correct?
1: right. But uh, th- that was the the initial patient was the key, basically. The, first of all, to introduce me to the idea that these patients exist. I'd never even witnessed that these this patients exist. Second, that uh, the the problems that they have are totally different from anything we learned in male reconstruction or female reconstruction. And when I try to apply what I knew, maybe in 70% of the uh, cases, this extrapolation worked, but in 30% of the cases, I realized that we can't just uh, apply what we know about male reconstruction into uh, reconstructing transgender urethra, for example.
0: So, in fact, even though I think the existence of this kind of reassignment surgery dates back to even the 1930s, I understand, initially, it's still very new and not being done in great, great numbers, and so the complications from this kind of surgery is very new to most urologists. But you have at this point developed a certain expertise in terms of making these kinds of corrections and helping these patients in terms of all kinds of urologic care following this kind of surgery. Am I correct? Whether they have a UTI or a urinary tract infection or something of that nature, you have become more knowledgeable and capable of following These types of patients?
1: Uh, This is correct. Um, I I believe that even if they don't have the complications, they still need to have continued neurologic care uh, because, just like I was very uncomfortable seeing the first patient, I believe that uh, any general urologist or even reconstructive urologist at this point would be unfamiliar with what they're dealing with. So I believe that they need to be, at this point, they need to be specialized. Centers for even continuing neurological care, uh, even simple things like UTI uh, or retention or um, maybe even prostate checks in the future. Uh, I I just don't don't see how uh, urologist that was not exposed to this kind of education. Uh, would be comfortable right. taking so it, care of this patients. It
0: is really kind of a sub-sub-sub-specialty at this point. Let me turn back to you, Terry, in the little bit of time we have left. Did, this, did the reassignment surgery help with what you called the dysphoria, the gender dysphoria, and what would you tell other parents now? What would your advice be to other parents in terms of not only undergoing this kind of surgery but in being able to seek that kind of care that now Dr. Nikolovsky is, is, is prepared to offer?
2: Um, well, well, first I, I want to commend Dr. Nikolovsky because as a parent and as an advocate, I have an understanding of the harsh realities of being transgender in our society and the disparities that exist in healthcare care for transgender people. know, um, 19% report being refused medical care. Due to their gender identity or expression, and and Dr. Nikolovsky, um, you can just tell in what he in his in how he spoke, how he approached this um, his fir- his first patient and other patients and his care to learn and 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 therefore support them. Um, as a parent, I've watched my son grow from a um, depressed, struggling with anxiety, bullied, iso- withdrawn, isolating individual to a young man who is now thriving in his life. He is a successful college student. He has held a full-time job. He is in a, a happy, healthy relationship. The changes, um, it's not not just um, the, having his body aligned with his gender identity, but being able to, to live as he knows himself, live as his true self, and move through the world, he is able to be his best self and is very successful, very happy, very healthy. And I don't know what more any parent could want for their child. I, I suggest all parents listen to their children, seek the care and support and help and resources that are available out there to be able to understand where their child is and what they need and how to best support them.
0: And part of it, as we just said, and I'm going to have to come to a close here, is that Dr. Nikolovsky, am I correct in saying that now you are able to see patients who are tran- who have had trans- transgender reassignment surgery following that and-, and providing them with the kind of care that it sounds like they may well need in an ongoing fashion?
1: Yes, I, I think at this point I'm ready to announce that, that uh, we will, Uh, be offering the continued neurologic care in our uh, reconstructive urology clinic. We are in contact with, I think, with most of the original reconstructive uh, and plastic surgeons that do this kind of operations. We have, uh, over the last three years, developed long-distance friendships and referral patterns. Uh, Also, I I found like-minded reconstructive individuals that do what I do. We have a tiny little network we're all in contact with each other and we learn from each other and uh, th- well, this is very th- this is a very uh exciting time uh, of discovery and uh, offering care to people that are under uh, under served uh, at this point
0: thank you so much i want to thank you both so much for coming in sharing both your stories because obviously they were um very, very personal for both Dr. Nikolovsky as an explorer in this area, and for you, Terry, as a parent of a transgender child. My guests have been Dr. Dmitry Nikolovsky, assistant professor of urology and the director of reconstructive urology at Upstate Medical University, and Terry Cook. She's the author of a new book called Allies and Angels, and she is the parent of a transgender child. Once again, thank you both for coming in and sharing your compelling stories. I'm Linda thank Cohen. And you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.